0: Carrie, I'm an alcoholic. I want to tell you what a pleasure it is to be here. Um, I was here in 2004, and I had such a wonderful experience. I think uh, I, uh, I took the week that I spent here in Iceland uh, home with me, and it changed me in a profound way because I got to see some wonderful people who really, really do live this program and who are very excited and enthusiastic about it. And I got to experience this week where I... I spent in fellowship here, and um, I made some wonderful lifelong friends, and I've been able to um, take that experience back to America and bring that enthusiasm where I live. And so to be back here on short notice, but back here nonetheless, um, you know, it, it, it's a beautiful thing. And to see a lot of the same faces, that to me is the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous, because, we, you know... Alcoholism is a deadly disease, and our chances of actually recovering and staying sober for any extended period of time is pretty rare. So to see some of the same faces and some of the same people that I saw seven years ago tells me that whatever it is that you guys are doing here, you're doing it, and you're doing it well. That you're carrying a message that truly, truly transforms an alcoholic from being a hopeless wreck to being somebody who can be vital and useful in their society, and I see people today, and I've and I, and people that I didn't think would remember me are like, oh, I remember you from then, and I remember your husband, and I'm I'm like, for me to think that you know I spent a week here, and that f- for whatever reason God was able to use me because on uh, myself you know I'm kind of useless, kidding, um, <laughs> but God was able to use me in a way that you know that people remember. And that had an effect on them. So you guys affected me and I affected you. And we got to go about our lives and meet again seven years later and say, wow, the fellowship of the Spirit is broad. And it is beautiful. And it is something to behold. And it is magnificent. You know, and I was thinking about it. I've been talking all day. And I have to tell you that I've been up since 5 o'clock in the morning yesterday. So I'm going to (laughs) apologize. Because... I left my brain somewhere, somewhere this afternoon. Like, it's gone. It's vacated. I'm. What you're seeing right now is pure primal energy in God because I pretty much was about to pass out a couple hours. <laughs> I was, like, nodding. You know, and I'm like, I, I really need to be awake because, you know what? I have a job to do, and I can sleep later. So I'm here to do my job, and then eat something and go to bed. So... <laughs> But what I want to say first, and what I always do, and you've heard this many times today, my sobriety date is September 6th, 1994. My sponsor's name is Peggy, and my home group is the Way Out Group in Tannersville, Pennsylvania. And I like to start my talk like that because it tells you, one, what I'm doing in Alcoholics Anonymous. It tells you that I'm an active member in good, in good standing. It tells you that I'm accountable. And tells you that I haven't had a drink, which is what qualifies me and you know, there's there's an old preamble that my husband and I like to use. We have a hu- we have a house meeting out of our house. Uh, well, of course we have a house meeting out of our house. See, this is where the exhaustion's coming in. Um, <laughs> some of this is going to get lost in translation, and I hope you can fix it <laughs> when you translate it. And... Anyway, um, we have a big book meeting out of our house, and we have this old uh, preamble from like 19. 19- 40 something or other. And it says that, you know, when, when an alcoholic drinks, a member of Alcoholics Anonymous drinks, that they lose all status in Alcoholics Anonymous, meaning not that you're not a member, not that you're not, we don't like you, but it means that something happened in, in this cake, this spiritual cake that we're making, these directions that we're following. And you need to redress these things because something's missing. Because what happens is, is that is that this program is intended to produce a spiritual experience that is sufficient to overcome alcoholism. The big book, my big book says that it asks me if I have a sufficient substitute for alcohol, meaning God or a relationship with God. And so when someone, an alcoholic, you know, is no longer sober, it means that if you come into AA and you're given the proper information, you're informed about the facts of what it means to be an alcoholic, you're told that there's a program of recovery, and something happens in the translation of that, and you're not able to take that information and apply it in some way, it means that the grace of God hasn't come into our lives and has to relieve our alcoholism. So, and I, you know, my husband and I, we, we read this preamble, and we talk with the women, the women and the men that we sponsor, and we explained that there's something more to being an Alcoholics Anonymous or being an Alcoholic Anonymous um, than parking my butt in a chair. You know. And it's important that we, if we're to remain sober and live on a spiritual basis, recognize that there are some responsibilities that we have to the program of recovery. So what I want to talk to you about is what it was like, what happened, and what I'm like now. And the thing is, is that we've been talking a lot today about drinking and about what it means to be an alcoholic. And for anybody who wasn't here earlier, I'm going to quickly explain this to you just so um, so that it makes sense what I'm about to talk to you about. So I have a disease called alcoholism. And what that means is that I have a physical craving, I have a mental obsession, and a spiritual malady. My physical craving is when I put alcohol in my system, for whatever reason... I'm not able to control how much I drink once I start. I have a mind that says, this time it'll be different, that it's okay to drink because I'm justified by some slight or some jealousy, bitterness, whatever's going, anger, resentment, fear. So this mind justifies that. Or it just doesn't care about the consequences of my drinking. And I have a spiritual malady that tells me that no matter what I do, I'm just not enough. And what I'm, what, I, what I really like, and, the, and I, and I'm going to bore some of the men in the, in the meeting and I apologize, but there's not a whole lot of women who talk about what it's like as a woman to get sober. You know, we, we, us women suffer through men laboriously, no offense to you guys, laboriously detailing what it means for them to get sober, but there's a ratio and it's a little less so in Iceland, I see, cause you guys are much, much more, um, you guys have a, a you're much more equal and an equal opportunity. I think that there's a, a less of a, a, a gender bias uh, in your society. But in general, men outnumber the women in Alcoholics Anonymous, and we have to ask ourselves why. Why is it that men are able to stay here and the women aren't? And I'm going to tell you why, and you're not going to like it, unless you're doing what I'm telling, what I'm, what I'm talking about, and then you're going to be like, yeah, she's right. But. <laughs> But the reason why the men are sticking and the women aren't is because the men are active in their 12th step. Because there's a a principle about the 12th step, and it's a cyclical thing. See, my first step was somebody else's 12th step. My 12th step is somebody else's first step. If if I have the spiritual awakening and I follow the principles of the program and I make this AA cake, because there's instructions and directions, right? It's a recipe for spiritual experience. And the idea here is that if I only follow some of the instructions, or the ones that are attractive, the ones that make me feel good, I'm not going to get a cake, I'm going to get a sloppy mess, right? You ever like just throw a bunch of shit in a bowl, mix it up, throw it in the oven and it tastes like crap? Well... If I define my program of recovery, that's what my program of recovery cake is going to look like. But when I follow the instructions of the big book, I get a pretty set, patented, quantifiable experience. And there's a difference at, between something that's quantifiable and something that's qual- qualifiable. And what I mean by that is that quantifiable is reliable, tested and if you do the same thing over and over again, you get the same exact result. So I had a quantifiable experience with alcohol. I felt empty, alone, and miserable. I put alcohol in my body, and I didn't feel that way anymore. That was quantifiable. That was a I can verify that I was miserable. Put alcohol in my body. I'm not. Huh? That works. And the twelve steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are also quantifiable. Because if we follow the instructions that are laid out in the book, we're going to get an experience that Bill describes. And he says that the very precepts or concepts and ideas that an alcoholic had, which were the guiding forces in our lives will be cast aside and entirely new concepts and motivations will dominate us. Meaning I was running my life. I did a bad job. I had bad instructions and I sucked at it. I did the 12 steps. I learn new ways to deal with things and I suck a lot less <laughs> very clearly. And that's a measurable experience because I can look at somebody and they can look at me and the awakened spirit within me and the awakened spirit within them kind of say, Hey, we're on the same page. I feel that you know what I'm talking about because we've had the same experience. So the program of recovery is pretty predictable. There are certain things that happen as we progress through this process. So if I'm making this spiritual cake and I'm creating this myself, I might be making a very beautiful cake and it might be awesome, but it's not the program of recovery outlined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's Carrie's Anonymous, right? Because I designed it. The flaw in that is that self-will is run rampant in my life. And so when I design my own cake, as beautiful as it might be, it's probably going to get me drunk because I decided that it was good. And let's face it, my decision-making skills when I'm an untreated alcoholic pretty much suck. My decision-making skills as a recovered alcoholic can sometimes suck. That's why I have uh, 10, 11, and 12 in the sponsor. You know, we'd <laughs> be clear about this. So the idea is that I have this—I have this disease that requires me to have this spiritual experience. The spiritual experience and the directions for this is, out, is laid out in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. But the question is, is: Why is it that this disease that I have requires me to have this spiritual experience? Why is it that I, as a human being, can't just figure out what's wrong with me? fix it and go about my married business. And that's the thing about being an alcoholic is that it's not some, it's not an external or a something that, you know, I can meet you on the street and I'm not going to say, Oh, you have alcoholism just by looking at you. It's something, you know, whereas, you know, if we have certain other diseases, have certain other problems, sometimes they're readily apparent from the outside the thing about being an alcoholic is there's something within us that's off, different, and just doesn't plain work in the way that it should. So I have this—I have this physical allergy, right? Meaning I put alcohol in my system. I can't control how much I drink, right? And I have this mental obsession that says that drinking is a good idea, no matter how bad it was the last time I drank, right? And I have that spiritual malady that says that whatever it is, I'm just not good enough. And those things I carry within me, they're not something that's, like I said, readily apparent on the outside. So I look all normal and nice to people. And then I do these incredibly crazy, stupid, horrible things. And they're shocked that this person that they thought was just such a normal human being can be so incredibly um, dumb at times. And the thing about being an alcoholic is that it's, for me, it, it wasn't a matter of just changing one aspect of my life. If it was a matter of just deciding to think differently about myself or think differently about you or think differently about alcohol, if that was within my power, you know, I could just change my mind about certain things and my life would get better, Right. But the thing about being an alcoholic is that I can know all of the things that I need to be doing, yet be unable to, for whatever reason, manifest those things in my daily life. And I'll give you a perfect example. I've been married for a really long time. Well, it feels like a long time. It's, you know, it's been with my husband. And <clears throat> it'll be 17 years in March. So I've been with him for a really long time. And you ever get into an argument with, with your significant other? And it's just a stupid, silly argument about something just so ridiculous, right? But neither one of you guys will back down, because if you back down, you'll be wrong, right? And we can't (laughs) ever be wrong. And you're talking, and you're having this argument. At first, it's not heated. It's just a debate, because you think a debate is a lively thing. We're having an intellectual interchange, right? And this is the things I tell myself about this debate. And all of a sudden it starts kind of getting personal and I'm kind of digging in, in my perspective because I, I need to make him understand that I'm right, right? So all of a sudden, it, what was it just a normal conversation about, I don't know, politics, I, food, the kids, paint, you know, all of a sudden starts to become this thing where like the two of us are in our corners and we're backed in and we're, we're not given, right? And my brain is saying to me, if you shut up right now, this'll stop. Just go have a cigarette, man. Go call a sponsee. Why don't you just pray? There's that thing called pause that you tell everybody, all your sponsees to do. Why don't you just try doing that right now? And my mouth is going, bah, 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 and my brain's going, shut up, shut up, will you just shut up? And I'm going, bah, 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 and, Ten minutes later, we're having an argument about something. I forgot how it started. I don't even know what my point was. I have lost all context of the conversation, and all I know is I'm pissed off. He's pissed off, and we we just and then I, and then I do the perfect Al-Anon thing that I love, which is this talk is getting heated, and I gotta go. So then I totally blame him for something that I did, right? And I say and I say I say I say, well. You know, why don't we talk about this when you're calm? Meanwhile, like, I've pushed every button he's got, so he's yelling. And I'm standing there all smug and quiet, like, haha, I got you to yell, about paint, right? And my brain's just saying, shut up. Just shut up. And I can't. I just can't. Because I might know what the right thing is to do. Shut your mouth and go home, be quiet, and behave yourself. But for whatever reason, I can't make what my brain knows to be right manifest in action, right? Because there's a disconnect there. And that disconnect is my spiritual malady. It's that powerlessness that we're talking about and that we've been talking about all day. I think that was the theme of this little thing here is what it means to be powerless and what one has to do in order to gain access to that power. So I'm powerless because on my own. I can't make what I know to be right work. Even if I'm doing the right thing, I usually do it wrong. You ever like you're talking to somebody and you, you're absolutely right in what your observations, but your approach just sucks and they shut down. They don't hear you and they're pissed off and you don't know why, because you were right. (laughs) I do that a lot. Less so now, less so. But the idea here is that lack of power is my dilemma, right? And I have to find a power by which I can live. And it has to be a power greater than myself. So when I do these talks, I mean I like to talk about it and say, okay, you know, yeah, I drank alcoholically. I can give you a perfectly perfect example of what craving mental obsession looked like. And I I was in Alcoholics Anonymous for about a year and I hadn't had a drink. But Because I was the good alcoholic that I was, every time I went to rehab, I would fake a new mental illness so I got better pills. (laughs) So I would leave rehab with, like, I don't know, like, you know, Valium, Thorazine. I really like Thorazine. Things like that. (laughs) I really like Thorazine. So Ativan that's another one. So I would leave the hospital or the rehab with, you know, a script for Ativan, which I would then drink and take. <clears throat> that's a real recipe for an OD <laughs> if you ever saw one. But my point is, is that, you know, I spent a year without putting alcohol on my system, maybe taking some pills every now and again, because my doctor said I could treating my spirituality through, you know, better chemistry didn't work very well. You know, Dating in an Alcoholics Anonymous, because my, my, my perception of what it meant to be a member of AA was making coffee, chairing meetings, and sleeping with the men. <laughs> Sounded like a good idea at the time. So as I was making my way through my home group, <laughs> <laughs> um... I meet my husband. He's got three days sober. I got a year that I'm lying. I'm going to AA every. I'm going to AA. I'm making all these meetings and I'm lying, saying that I'm sober, but I'm really not because I'm you know popping pills and uh, not as prescribed. <laughs> and I and I meet him, and the first thing he says to me is, "You know, I did a lot of acid." Well, first he says, "I'm on parole." and I did a lot of acid, and I really like you. I'm not sure if you're real. I could be in in an asylum right now, (laughs) but since I really like you, I hope this is real, and I'm not just locked up somewhere, and I said, I'm going to take him home to mom. I did. She actually really likes him, by the way, but (laughs) so I meet this guy, He's perfect. I'm 17. He's 25. That's perfect, right? He's little by booze. It's perfect for me. So I meet him in an AA meeting. We decide that we're going to go out for one night. We're going to go out and drink. And I'm going to come back to AA the very next day. Because they always said, well, if you drink, you don't lose the time. You don't lose the wisdom you learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. You just lose your time. And you could just start over. Relapse is, you know, part of getting sober. Okay, well, you know, I hadn't relapsed in a year. I was owed one. So I go out, and I said, I'm just... Well, actually, I went to two meetings, and I I said to myself, if this meeting sucks, I'm going to go drink. So I went to the first (laughs) meeting, and it really kind of didn't suck, so I had to go to another meeting. (laughs) And that meeting really did suck, so I went and drank. So we go out and I and my we go out and we buy we buy this booze and my husband who was my boyfriend at the time says, you know, here's a meeting list and a bunch of phone numbers. Why don't you not drink? But I'm gonna go drink. And I'm like, well, you're not drinking without me. So we drank. We drank and drank and drank and drank and drank and drank that night. So me, I'm eighty-five pounds at this time, because you know, I don't eat. I just drink, I just take pills and now I'm drinking again. So I'm eighty-five pounds and my husband is six foot four. And he's drunk on the ground and I'm dragging him through this park, you know, trying to get him home, you know, because I I met him on a, did I say I moved in with him in like two days? (laughs) I had already run away from home. I, 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 I I was living with this like 35 year old guy who had two ex-wives and a couple kids. They weren't living there at the time, but I kind of, I kind of figured, you know, sugar daddy. Um I was very much like that. Um <laughs> So but but he kind of he wasn't as cool as my husband so I found a new sugar daddy. You know, I kept that one. But um needless to say, I move in with him with my hefty bag from the the, the other guy. And uh so we're, we're 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 stumbling home, I finally get him up the stairs and he passes out, I pass out. We wake up the next morning and he goes, "We got to go back to AA." And I said, Now I'm going to go buy some booze. And maybe some acid. Craving. I said, I can drink tonight. I'm, I deserve it. I'm young. I'm not really an alcoholic because you have to be old and fat and, you know, and bald and you have to have a penis to be an alcoholic. I don't have any of those things. So, I'm not an alcoholic, so I can drink, right? Well, no. I put alcohol in my system, and the problem is with me is I don't get done with alcohol; alcohol gets done with me. So I drank every day for four months, and at one point, my husband decided that he wanted to go back to Alcoholics Anonymous. So I locked myself in the bathroom with a bottle of booze and a razor and threatened to kill myself if he he went back to AA because then he was going to have to he was going to get sober, and I wasn't done drinking. And I knew I couldn't stop, so I figured I'd codependent manipulate him in that beautiful way that only alcoholic women can do so we drank for another month or two then we went back to AA when I decided it was time, I'm kidding (laughs) but perfect perfect, perfect example of mental obsession and physical craving and of course spiritual malady because I was absolutely spiritually bankrupt You know, and this is my point. So I have this disease. That's a perfect example of that. But the question is, is how did I get from being like that to standing here today, still with the same drunk parolee? He's not on parole anymore, though, because it's been a long time, you know. And in a completely different frame of mind, I'm still the same person, but I'm not. How did that happen? Well, part of it is, And this is, this is not, this is not what you guys have going on here, but part of what recovery looked like where I lived was, you know, a lot of hand holding, bubble bath taken, uh, head patting, oh, your poor baby bullshit. So I would go into the meetings and I would whine and cry and complain and tell my sob story. And I got one. I got a good one. Actually, I got a good, nice story that would have you guys tearing up real good. Um, and I would tell this story and everybody would say, poor Carrie, no wonder why she's so fucked up. (laughs) And I didn't get any better. And I used to hear people say, you know, a problem shared is a problem half. So I'd walk in and say, well, I was molested from the ages of five to the ages of 12. And then I was date raped at 14. And then I was raped again at 16. And my brother liked to throw me down flights of stairs. Thank you for letting me share. (laughs) I didn't get any better. None of that stuff went away. I walked around a perpetual victim, constantly afraid, and always, always feeling as if there was just something that other people had a secret that they had about how they went about their lives that I just could not access. And feeling as if, you know, I just, I missed that day in class. And I was always just trying to catch up and figure out just how do you have a conversation with somebody? How do you say no without screaming? You know, how do you say, I don't like that without throwing pots and pans. How do you do that? So these are things that I just didn't know how to do when I got sober because my emotions own me. My past owned me. Every little thing that ever happened to me owned me in a thousand ways that I was constantly at the mercy of the things that I believed happened and the things that did happen. So there's a wonderful thing about an alcoholic is that we create our own drama when we don't have any. And we live in constant drama when we got some good stuff. So I spent five years in Alcoholics Anonymous, in and out, in and out, work in the system, and I spent two years in Alcoholics Anonymous desperately trying not to drink and dying inside. My husband and I got sober on the same day. We drank together. We got sober together. And uh, we tried to kill each other for the first two years that we were sober because we were miserable, angry, resentful, frightened little kids who pretended to be adults So I'm 18 years old. I put down alcohol because God gave me the grace to do so. You know, so kept me in that grace, in that beautiful bubble of grace until I was able to get a message of depth and weight to relieve that spiritual malady. And I think part of the reason why that happened was because I was able to use my daughter as a higher power because I got pregnant within 30 days of getting sober. Actually, when my daughter was born, we were really worried because we smoked a lot of dust. And I was like, you know, <laughs> dust is uh, PCP, and it causes a lot of birth defects. <laughs> so when my daughter was born, we're like, okay, everything's where it should be. Good. <laughs> we, <laughs> we, we conceived her when we were detoxing, not when we were using. Great. Um, yeah. um, so, you know, I find out that I'm pregnant. I'm 60 days sober. And I'm homeless. I'm living on a member of Alcoholics Anonymous's couch, which happened to be my husband's ex-girlfriend. She's a saint because I was evil, and she let me sleep on her couch. Um, My parents had disowned me. My parents are Irish Catholic, and one of the things about being Irish Catholic is you know you're not allowed to fornicate or anything like that, right? And you're certainly not allowed to get knocked up, and you're certainly not allowed to get knocked up at 18 out of wedlock. With a parolee, that doesn't happen. Um, <laughs> so my mom, my parents were nonetheless not excited about the developments in my life, um, and they had they had actually disowned me. Um, not disowned me. That's not even the word. They had detached with love um, when I was when I had relapsed and I was really thoroughly in my addiction. I can remember I was on a street corner doing what I would. What what I do, which is uh, buying some non-conference approved substances with a bottle of booze in my hand and my mother's coming home from work and I'm in the middle of East Orange. East Orange is, well, it's kind of like Harlem, but it's in Jersey. Okay, It's not a very nice place to be. So I'm this little hit, uh, like I'm wearing, I think I was barefoot. I don't even know if I own shoes anymore. It was the summer though. I was walking around, you know, East Orange, you know, uh, barefoot, and a mess, and my mother's driving home from work, and she just happened to drive past me at that very moment when I had the bottle and my money. And she locks eyes with me, and she just shook her head and kept driving. She passed her 18-year-old daughter barefoot in the middle of the ghetto, buying stuff with booze under her arm. And it was too painful for her to stop because she knew that I would break her heart again. And she just had to drive. And I, you know, when I made amends to her, which I have, she told me that she cried her eyes out that day because she knew that I was lost. So I get sober and I think my family hates me because, you know, (laughs) I'm a self-centered alcoholic. And I just think, how dare you hate me? You made me an alcoholic. You screwed me up and now you don't like what you did. And you're mad at me about it. Give me money, you know, take care of me and make up for all your mistakes. Um, uh, Entitlement was a problem for me. Um, (laughs) and, uh, you know, so my parents were not, not too thrilled. So my husband and I, we, you know, we said we really have to do this AA thing. Originally, we kind of came in to dry out. I mean, one of the things that people like me do in Alcoholics Anonymous is I come in for a couple months, and I, uh, I use people in AA. They take care of you. They give you rides. They give you a place to stay. They pat you on your head, and they listen to your drama so you can feel a little better. And you get a little dried out, and then you go back to drinking, right? Because I don't want to get sober. I just want the pain to stop. I don't want to stop drinking. I just wanted the consequences to end. And the one place I knew where people would tolerate me, no matter how demented and sad I was, was Alcoholics Anonymous. So I came in with that intention. And God gave me my daughter, Day. He knew better than I what I needed to in order to stay sober because I hated God when I came here. I hated the idea of God. I resented God in the same way I resented my poor, wonderful parents because. He failed me because he let bad things happen to me. And I couldn't understand how a loving God who was supposed to be protecting me could allow those bad things that I named, I wasn't making those things up, happen to me. So I, you know, when people said, well, you know, you got to get a higher power. I'm like, I got a higher power. He sucks. I don't like him. He doesn't like me. And we're not playing. They're like, well, use AA as your higher power. And I'm like, it's full of perverts and old men. <laughs> I mean, you got to remember, I, was, I came, in, came into Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, really young. And men sometimes forget themselves around, you know, pubescent girls. So um, every once in a while, a dirty old man would pinch my butt, and I'd be like, see, that's why Alcoholics Anonymous sucks. You know, because I wasn't talking to the women. I was getting rides from dirty old men. You know. And then I wondered why I I, I thought AA sucked, right? So anyway, so AA sucked. It was full of dirty old men. The women didn't like me because I didn't talk to the women. I talked to the dirty old men. Um, God sucked because he punished me for something I didn't know what I did because I felt that when I was was, uh, in second grade, um, some bad stuff was going on in my life. I had some pretty horrific stuff. Stuff that I eventually did bring to a counselor and we did some work on it after I got sober. Because counseling's a beautiful thing to treat things other than alcoholism. So I had outside issues, PTSD, things like that. And, uh, and when I was in second grade, I went to church. My parents were very Catholic. I got down on my knees and I begged God to make something stop. I said, you know, if you can make this stop, if you can make this person stop hurting me, I'll do anything you want. I'll become a nun. I'll do anything you want. And he didn't make it stop. So I said, fuck you, God. You don't like me, I don't like you, and we're not playing. I'm going to take my ball and go home. And that's exactly what I did. And at that point, God and I parted ways, and I wasn't having none of it. So I come into AA, they say, get a God. But they don't tell me how to get a God. They don't tell me how to get a relationship with God. They don't tell me how to relieve, get relieved of all these resentments and fears and all these false beliefs and concepts and ideas that were driving me and causing me to think about God in terms of a Santa Claus and ATM. I mean, that's really how I looked at God. He was Santa Claus. He was supposed to give me what I wanted whenever I asked for it. An ATM was supposed to give me money, just like my parents. So... You know, I'm looking at God in these terms, and nobody in Alcoholics Anonymous is saying, gee, Carrie, might want to write some inventory on that because, you know what, you're delusional. They're saying, just let go and let God. I'm like, I don't want him to have it. I don't like him. He's going to screw it up. He screwed me up. I'm not giving him any more. So what happened was is I had a daughter, and my daughter was my higher power for the first two years in recovery. Because I didn't want my daughter to experience some of the things I experienced in my life. I wanted her to have a life that was better than my own. And because I believe that it came from a truly unselfish place and and a true love for my child, God graced me with two years of sobriety. But at the end of those two years, I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm sicker than I ever was. Not in the external thing, you know, I look good. You know, uh, you know, I I have a nice apartment. I, you know, I I have all the things that one would say. She's a functional member of society. But I would come to AA meetings and I would sit in the back of the room, and I would get up to get a cup of coffee and I'd sit in the last row, right by the coffee maker. And I was sure that all of you knew that I was getting up and you were secretly thinking about me as I walked to the coffee maker and you were facing forward, man. So everybody's facing forward. Nobody sees me, but I'm absolutely sure that I'm the most important person in the room and you're all thinking about me and judging me because my butt's fat, because I'm not smart enough, because there's something wrong with me and you know it. So I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous having panic attacks over and over again. I can't even sit still. My hands shook, my knees shook. I was going completely insane and all I wanted to do was die. The problem was, is I had already tried to die. My heart stopped for two minutes. And I came back. And I had a, I had a ma- major suicide attempt when I was 16. And um, I woke up three, la- three days later in the ICU, intubated, pissed off, because, again, God failed me. Because, dude, he doesn't even want me. I tried to go home to him. And he said No. So I can't die because I know suicide's not working for me. (laughs) Drinking ain't working for me. Living ain't working for me. And I knew, I absolutely knew that if I didn't do something, something didn't happen, I was going to be a horrible mother. So out of just sheer God's will, kids, the beautiful way that this, the way, the beautiful way that that uh, everything seems to come together at that perfect moment at that perfect time, when uh, it, it couldn't be any it couldn't be any more perfect. I walk into a room, in an AA meeting, full of big book thumpers that everybody told me not to go to that meeting because they were crazy, and uh, in that meeting was sitting this guy who um, was going to study with the Dalai Lama. And it was the last, uh, he was actually doing a workshop and he had just happened to be at that meeting that night because one of his sponsees was chairing it. And um, I'm in this meeting and they're talking about the amends. Now, I had worked the steps in my mind up until that point because I had a step book and I thought a lot about the fourth step. I thought a lot about the fifth step. And every once in a while I would sit in an AA meeting and say something incredibly personal that would make everybody uncomfortable. Thinking that was a fist step, because I would hear things like, I fist step all the time, I share in meetings. Dude, <laughs> there's certain things that just really don't belong in AA meetings. Yeah. I didn't get that. Um, and there's certain things that belong in AA meetings to let other people know that you can survive them. Depends on why you're doing it. So I was thinking about the four step a whole lot, I thought a lot about the A step. And I decided that most of the people who were on my list didn't deserve an amends because they sucked. (laughs) So I made amends to the few people I felt were deserving of an amends and I called it a day. So I'm sitting in this meeting and there's this guy talking about amends. And what he was saying was that my one's failure to make, to finish their amends has something to do with whether or not they're going to drink again. Because One's failure to, to to make amends or when, when someone says, I'm not making an amends, and we dug or, dig our heels in and we balk on something, means that we really don't understand the desperateness of the situation of the alcoholic. You know, when Bill uses the word doomed and hopeless, hopeless and doomed over and over again, he's not mincing words. He really means that the alcoholic condition is hopeless without divine intervention. One gets that divine intervention through the process of the 12 steps, so... He's explaining this in this meeting and I'm getting pissed because I think those people don't deserve my amend and I'm going to tell him that. So I raise my hand and I say this crazy stuff. I mean like I, I exorcist on the meeting. My head spins around. pea soup flies out. I'm toxic, like seriously toxic. And he just smiles like a smug little bastard. I do that now too, which is really funny. So, he smiles and he pulls me aside after the meeting and asks me some questions about, you know, my drinking, whether I have craving, whether I have mental obsession and spiritual malady. And I don't realize this because no one's ever brought me through the steps. So I really don't understand what he's doing. He's just asking me questions about stuff and I'm answering them. But I'm going, but you don't know. And he's just cutting me off. And, and then he calls somebody over and says, you need to work with her. And I start working the steps out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't even know that I did. I just said, this guy who looked like Captain... If David Crosby and Captain Kangaroo had sex, that's what this guy looked like. Okay? So this Captain Kangaroo dude, you know, basically threw me at this other person who said, they're going to save your life. You're dying. Just do what they say, please. And I said, okay, Captain Kangaroo. I'm... I sit down and I start working out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm informed about the hopelessness of our condition. I'm informed about what it means to be an alcoholic. I realized that I had spent, at that point, seven years in Alcoholics Anonymous claiming to be an alcoholic, not knowing what it meant to be an alcoholic. For the first time in my life, I was truly able to diagnose myself because I knew what it meant to be an alcoholic. You're not an alcoholic when you say you are. That's not what it means to be an alcoholic. I mean, anybody can walk, off, walk, into, walk in here off the street with any problem in the world, say they're an alcoholic, and monopolize our meetings. They do it all the time in Jersey because what happens is social workers say to people who have other problems, who cannot afford therapists, to go to Alcoholics Anonymous and share about their problems. Yeah, I, I, I get really upset at that, but uh, <laughs> I actually have a degree in counseling and, and pulled, the, pulled one of my professors aside who said that in the classroom. I didn't embarrass him, but later on, I tore him a new one like you wouldn't believe. I explained to him our traditions and what that means. But anyway, and he even said, go to closed meetings because they're better. Alcoholics share better stuff. I was like, oh God, I'm going to explain to you. Anyway. So these, these social service organizations send people who are not alcoholics into Alcoholics Anonymous to use us as a resource, right? So we have all these people in America who are in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings who are not alcoholics, who don't drink alcoholically, don't have the, the craving, don't have the mental obsession, don't have the spiritual malady. And, of course, we're too afraid of offending them, so we let them stay, And then what happens is that our our meetings become bitch fest and whining and crying and bullshit and people, the real alcoholic walks into the meeting, doesn't hear nothing they identify with because they hear people talking about their cat, you know, their divorce, you know, all of, you know, all of this other stuff, their debts. And like, look, there's, there's Overeaters Anonymous. There's Al-Anon, there's Debtors Anonymous, there's Narcotics Anonymous, there's CA, there's MA, there's an A for whatever you got. If you want to go to an open meeting, shut your mouth and listen, awesome! But if one, if you come to a closed meeting and start sharing in my meeting about your problem with with, with your debts or your codependency, I'm gonna pull you aside very gently. I swear I'm gentle. <laughs> And say, you know, I understand that it seems like this is a perfect place to share that. But it seems to me that you have an outside issue going on. I know this woman. She's over here. She attends that uh, fellowship that deals with that. Come on. Let's talk. Let's go have a cup of coffee. Let's hook you up with a meeting. I'm not mean about it. But I get you the frick out of my meeting in a very gentle way. (laughs) So without realizing it, that's exactly what this person did is he figured out he decided that I was an alcoholic before I did. Because he asked me some really pointed questions and I answered them honestly because I didn't know enough to lie. And then he hooked me up with somebody who was going to explain to me who I was and what I needed to do to get better. So what happened was I began to have this experience with the 12 steps. And the first thing I felt was absolute terror because I realized that... (laughs) I was gonna die if I didn't do this. Before I was like, la di da di da, gonna make some coffee, la di da da. Maybe I'll pick up a new boyfriend. The current one kind of sucks, you know. And then all of a sudden, it's like, this is a life and death errand. This is a hopeless disease. If I don't do this work, I'm gonna die. And 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 an alcoholic death is the most disgusting, horrible death ever, dude. Because we don't die in that, like, it's not like, it's not like, you know, know, what is it, Dylan Thomas who died on his barstool, didn't he, like, just keel over? Is that legend? I don't know if that's actually true, but I heard that somewhere. But, you know, we don't, uh, you were talking about it earlier about exploding, right? We we don't die that way. We die in the most horrible, lonely way possible. Like, with our cats, you know, you know, (laughs) bloated with pancreatitis, you know, Yellow eyes and our own feces in this horrible bed with the cat feces and the cat vomit and our vomit and nobody knows the difference and we're bloated and they find us four days later and they don't know how long we've been dead. Right? That's how an alcoholic is found. That's how we die. You know, or we go completely stark raving insane without ever putting alcohol in our body and we do crazy things like, let me have sex with ten guys without condoms and let's see if I don't get AIDS. Let me play the lottery on that one. You know, we do crazy stuff like that. I think it's because when it's untreated alcoholism, we do crazy stuff like that because we want to feel alive. You know, we eat till we want to vomit and then we vomit and then we eat some more and then we have sex with 10 guys because we want to feel alive. Because we're empty and we're alone and we're, there's nothing. We're a shell when, I'm a shell. I'm not, I don't want to speak for you. I'm a shell when I don't have God. And if I don't have the alcohol, to make that go away, I'm going to shove 10 pounds of shit in a five-pound bag and hope it fits. (laughs) You know, Bill talks about blotting out the intolerableness of our situation. And that's what I'm talking about. So we die an alcoholic death in a thousand ways in Alcoholics Anonymous. I can die an alcoholic death sitting in that chair through depression and loneliness because I think nobody will understand how individual and special I am because no one could possibly understand the problems that I have because I'm so unique. (laughs) Let me tell you something. In the past 16 years, I've sponsored, I want to say a thousand people. I sponsor roughly a hundred to 200 people a year. I'm a busy, busy lady. And doesn't mean that I've gotten them, that doesn't mean they haven't all, some of them are drying, some of them are running, screaming for me. I'm saying I have sat down, opened the book, and started step work with at least 1,000 people in the past 16 years. And I've heard countless fist steps. I mean, I average about one a week, okay? Every week of the year. Sometimes I just want to, sometimes I'm just like, no fist steps this week, I can't handle it. I need, I need to not think about, yik. <laughs> for about a week, and then I'm good again. Um, but here's the thing: is I there's nothing that I haven't heard a thousand times, and that's the awesomeness about being a sponsor. That's the awesomeness of being of service within Alcoholics Anonymous and carrying this message and fulfilling that 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 contract that I make with God in the third step and the seventh step. Because what you know, the third and seventh step basically says, "Help me to stop being an asshole, and I'll do Your will." That's, that's what those things say, basically. Relieve me of the bondage of self. Take away my difficulties. You know, it says, take all of me good and bad. I don't get to decide what's good and bad. I'm saying to God, I, my judgment sucks. I keep screwing up. Fix me, please. And you know what I'll do is I'll help your kids. That's, what, that's, the, that's the agreement we make with God. And the awesome thing is God says, sure, absolutely. Just not in the way you think it's going to be. Hence my horrible foul mouth, which I apologize for. My Jersey girls can kind of get away with that. I'm kidding. Um, Anyway, so I there's nothing that I haven't heard in a fist step. So the thing is, is that that uniqueness that I thought that I had, I found that was a complete delusion that I carried into Alcoholics Anonymous. It was that thing that separates you from me. And what I found out what it was, was Ego. It was that thing that I used to tell myself that I that the principles of this program didn't apply to me because I had a special type of alcoholism. It's called carry alcoholism, and nobody can possibly have this type of alcoholism because it's unique. It's a unique strain only to me. It's a mutant strain of alcoholism in which the twelve steps and the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous do not apply to, except in the way that I dictate. My ego will say things like that, and of course, my sponsor smacks me in the head. I say that she likes to smack me with in the nose with a rolled-up newspaper, um, you know, kind of dog. You know, knock it off, Carrie. Go sit. Behave. Go pray. But anyway, so what's it like now? Well, you got to hear that I get to be of service with within Alcoholics Anonymous quite a bit, and that's a privilege. I mean, I can't tell, I can't tell you how amazing it is to me one to be be able to come out here and do what I'm doing. And I get the privilege of doing this pretty often, which is pretty cool because I can't understand why anybody would want to listen to me for an hour. I don't want to listen to me for a freaking hour. Now, I'm sure a couple of the people I scared out of the room were, didn't want to listen to me for an hour either. But I get the privilege of coming here and doing this. And the thing is, is the hour that I spend talking, that's gratis. Man, I, I do that because I got to do that because by coming up here and talking to you, I get to interact with you down there. Now, I'm a shy, backward person. In fact, I'm, you know, I'm all loud and blab from the podium, and then you get me, and I'm smoking in the corner like, you know, hi. Um, you know, because I'm not, you know, for me, my I found that my personality, that, that, that front that I put up to say, like, oh, love me, accept me, love me, love me, was just a front, and then it's okay. I can be shy. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to make my way over. I'm going to ask you some questions. We're going to shake hands. I won't remember your name because... I just don't. I'm brain damaged that way. But I'll remember your face and I'll point at you. You. You know. But I get to do this. I get to come here and do this and see Alcoholics Anonymous at work all over the world. I mean, how awesome is that? And then I get to go back to my home group and say, you people, you don't know what they got going on in Iceland. You don't know what they got going on wherever the hell I was last week. You don't know. And we got to do better because they're kicking our ass you know but so it's a privilege but i think the greatest privilege that i've ever been given in alcoholics anonymous except for being able to be the mother that i want to be to my children so now i have four kids yeah we fixed that snip snip (laughs) my husband's scottish i'm irish celtic jeans we're very fertile, so we decided we were going to take matters into our own hands. In fact, when I gave birth to my son Rowan, my husband videotaped my tubes being tied—not the birth. That was—I'd done that four times. That was old hat, but he had—he had to put on the internet the cut, the footage of my tubes being tied because I think that was the momentous moment in the Andregg household. Yeah. Anyway, so other than getting to be the kind of mom that I want to be and getting to be the kind of wife that, <laughs> getting to be the kind of wife that one, my husband deserves and that I want to be, and getting to be the person. I mean, I think that the thing that I hear most often in Alcoholics Anonymous is, you know, it says, you know, you say that when you get a sponsor and you want what they have, right? And I realize when I really was living in the fellowship of the spirit was when I wanted what I had. And I don't have much. I mean, I'm not rich at all. You know, I have four kids to feed. I'm not rich. You know, I, I don't, I don't, I get all this awesome stuff. And I live in a beautiful house in the middle of the woods, in the middle of nowhere, and it's gorgeous. I get all of this awesome stuff because God has been extraordinarily been, you know, plentiful with me. He's been wonderful with me. And I'm grateful for everything that I had. And if I, when I don't have anything, I'm grateful for that too. But the thing is, is those external things, the house, the car, the kids, the husband are meaningless. If I don't like who I am, because ultimately the thing that made all of my relationships not work, was that I brought a damaged self to all of them. I brought this damaged self that just absolutely, in the deepest, darkest part of me, believed myself to be worthless. You know, my sponsor has me do an inventory. It's a fear inventory. And part of it is this thing that's a boil down, where you take your fear and then you boil it down to these handful of core, deep fears. And the fear that, even after dying an alcoholic death, that came for me was the fear that I was worthless, that God did not love me, that there was something innately broken in me that made me somehow, you know, like a mutant that God could not love. And that was my deepest, darkest fear. Through doing the step process and looking at and, and, sharing that with another human being and having her laugh and be like, dude, I totally relate. I felt the same way you did. Yeah. I don't anymore. Well, how not? Well, I did what you're doing. And then I went out and made a bunch of amends and I started to be able to look people in the eye and I started to be relieved of all that fear because you want to be relieved of fear, start knocking on some doors and making amends for things that you did when you were drinking. And you'll find that power, that grace, that God using you, riding you, You know, because the thing is, is that there's nothing like taking an amends that you're terrified of. Going to God, asking for the power, walking through the fear, knocking on the door, and having that conversation, whether they slam the door in your face or not. Having God wear you like a carry suit, because that's what God is doing. God's wearing me like a carry suit. You guys are not Men in Black fans, huh? Okay. (laughs) Okay, well, anyway, so that, that went over your heads. But God using me and allowing me to witness the knitting together of my spirit. So I got to witness this happen within me because I saw that things about myself changed. Slowly, my perspectives on you, my perspectives on me, my perspectives on the war- world began to become, go from being completely doom and gloom and constant drama and bullshit To beginning to feel like no matter what or how frightened I might be, that the outcome is always going to be something that I'm going to enjoy. I may not enjoy the process to the outcome. No one ever loves that part. But ultimately trusting that God knows what's best for me and that I should mind my own business and stop messing it up. And ultimately through going out and making these amends or having these experiences and knocking on those doors and having those conversations and being able to set right these wrongs, I was able to feel human again for the first time in my life. I was able to feel as if I deserved to be loved because I felt the grace of God move me in a way that I could never, never feel before because there's nothing... There's nothing, when you have that scary amends, that one thing you did that you just really don't want to make amends for, and you know you're going to die an alcoholic death if you don't, so you know, your sponsor leverages that fear of dying an alcoholic death, live on a spiritual basis, all right, I'll go, and I'll make the amends, you know, and you're going to do it, and you're, you're praying, and you're holding on, you're holding on, and you show up, and all of a sudden, that healing happened, and that amend that you projected that was going to go totally wrong, all of a sudden, he, there's that healing, and that process, and that, that relationship just all of a sudden, all of these misconceptions and all of this stuff and all of these fears just fall from you. You're sitting there with this person in absolute communion and harmony. And you walked into this terrified and you feel incredibly at peace and whole. And you walk out of there and you think, if God can do that, he can do anything. And I have evidence because I was able to, through the grace of God and a sponsor with a big stick and a big book, beat me into, (laughs) pushed me, motivated me, prodded me into following through with this process. And as I did, God woke up and I began, or God within me woke up and I began to recognize God manifesting in my life in these little tiny ways. And I began to rely on it so intuitively and entirely that today the concept or the idea that God exists and is loves me and is working for what's best for me, even if I don't know or understand or even anything about it. I can rely on that, and it's a central fact of my life. I cannot live my life today without the belief and the reliance on that there's a higher power and that he is doing for me what I cannot do for myself. Because I have a life that's difficult, man. I have a lot of sponsors. I have a lot of responsibilities. I have a lot of kids. I don't have a whole lot of money. I got a lot of stuff going on. I'm in graduate school. I got I got a busy-ass life. How does one do all these things? As a human being, I'm going to fall short a thousand times a day. But when I put my hand out and I say, and I do this, I, I literally physically put my hand out and I say, I put my hand in yours, God, let's go. I feel this sense of wholeness and trust and I do this and I continue to do it. And then the women that I sponsor, they do it. And I watch them get knitted together. And so on the days that I really just don't feel like playing and I don't like God's rules and I'm not about doing spiritual principles because I want what I want. And I'm watching them get knitted together. I'm watching them rely on that intuition, develop these spiritual principles, apply them to their lives and, and explode in, 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 peace and love and harmony and join me in this fellowship of the spirit. I'm watching this happen and I cannot doubt the power of God because I'm watching it. It happened to me and I'm watching it currently this very second, this very moment. I'm saying it right now. I'm watching it in your face so I can go home on Monday <laughs> and say that I saw the power of God. I witnessed it in Iceland. I experienced it and it is true present and real. And this program works. The only thing that I have to do is be willing to seek a spiritual solution for a spiritual problem. Oh, my God. The key that fits the lock. It was very simple. I just had to shut up and get out of the way. So, I don't know. I think that God's done with me right now. So I'm going to thank you so much for having me and for tolerating listening to me all day. And I apologize if I offended any of you, because I probably did. I'm good at that. But what I really want to thank you is for allowing me to witness God in your life. Because what you did is you gave me some more, some more juice so that when I go home and I'm with the women I sponsor and I'm doing the deal and they have a question or a thing that I just don't have an answer to and i got to call my sponsor and she's got to call her sponsor and we'll figure it out and go into prayer and meditation, I can trust that God will provide that answer because I'm watching God here. I know he's working in your life. We both, we all have the same problem and we're all seeking the same solution. So if I do what you do and you do what I do, we're going to get this awesome deal. Thank you.